We're going to have a bit of a conversation now. Unfortunately, we only have one radio mic, so we're going to need to pass it around between us um, as we do, and then we'll open it up to questions from the audience. Um, so my first question to you all is a really general one on the theme of the week, which is what has inspired you to write, both literary and in the wider world? Katie? Um, is this like a variation on the influences yeah. question? Um, it was interesting. I think influences can so often be circumstantial. And when I was writing, there's a big fight scene at the end of end of the book, which is about maybe 30 pages. And I was writing it in Suffolk, um, in a beach house. And I was working upstairs, and my very good friend was working downstairs. And she's a filmmaker, and she was editing a documentary, a dance documentary, um, which is a performance of Alain Patel, his Belgian choreographer's um, piece, Vespers, which is slightly a long way of saying that she was working on this incredible, incredibly kind of rhythmic, physical piece of filmmaking, and I was upstairs trying to write a similarly rhythmical piece of writing. And so I would sometimes go downstairs and watch her edit for a bit, and somehow seeing the bodies on the screen and watching how she was putting it together and making the images make sense, I think actually influenced me quite a lot when I was writing. And I think it often works like that. There are writers I'll read for a year, and then the next year I'll be reading a different group of writers. But um, it can sometimes just be what happens to be right around you at that time. Well, now I'm mixed up about the question. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I started writing prose when I was probably 14, 15, and uh, I grew up in the Soviet Union, and my father was communist, and uh, grandfather was Stalinist, and my elder brother, who was seven years older than me, actually, he was anti-Soviet, and he was, you know, he and his friends were bringing a lot of banned literature, and some is that whole, so I started reading the these books and manuscripts, and I realized that there are books approved, sort of banned and non-banned. And then I knew that the, the Soviet writers were very happy because they, they didn't need to write a book to get advanced payment, and they didn't need to go to work. So I had this mixed, mixed feeling that it's nice to be a writer. I mean, if you're an official writer, you don't need to go anywhere, you just stay at home and you drink vodka or cognac or beer, and then you write about good communists and, and, and bad guys. And then at the same time, actually, what I was writing was more uh, like uh, banned literature. And, and it was already Brezhnev's time, which was not very dangerous. Not many people were put into prison. Uh, and uh, actually, my, my manuscripts, which were not accepted by the publishing houses in the Soviet Union, but they were copied by different friends. And they also joined Samizdat circuit. And I was traveling in the Soviet Union with illegal readings, uh, very often to Moscow, Riga, Lenin, uh, Leningrad, Tambov. I had my oral audience, and actually my first book was published only several weeks before the collapse of the Soviet Union. But uh, I, I mean, I still like the idea that I don't need to go to factory or to work, but, uh, but in order to, to discipline myself, actually, I have a separate flat where I work, so I, I walk from my family flat to my working studio for three or four minutes, so there is some kind of need of uh, discipline. <laughs> really don't have to follow that. Um, well, forget the question. <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted to be a painter when I was younger. Um, I was really, really bad at it, so it's good that I haven't regressed into a fully-fledged painter, but I think it was all about making an object, and, um, and the, the kind of painting I wanted to do was very... Um, it's kind of... I don't know, there's an artist called Sarah Raphael who used to tell 
kind of mythical tales through her, you know, it sounds awful, but it's really good, um, through her, her drawings and paintings. And I think what I couldn't get, the satisfaction I couldn't get from painting, I, I found I could get from short stories. And I think a lot of, a lot of my writing starts from uh, my childhood in Australia. Um, I, I tend to draw on memories of smells and, and tastes and sounds from, from Australia when I was sort of about nine, I suppose. Thank you. I think they, they, they really come across, particularly the ballet you, you mentioned and the, and the, the, the kind of physical rhythmic um, image, I think, is really conveyed in that final scene. You, you explaining it, it suddenly clicked and made complete sense. Um, moving on to sort of translation, particularly Andre, um, being so fluent in so many countries, um, it must be a strange experience being able to read your work in so many different languages. Um, and just kind of compare them to your own. Um, and I wondered if you could just speak for a minute perhaps about what your experience has been of that translation and um, whether you feel that you've, you've um, learned things about your work through reading it in other languages um, and the fact that sometimes there's, I think this The Good Angel of Death was published in the late 90s. Um, so it's been you know, a good 10 years, if not more like 15, between the publication in originally in Russian and now in um, in, in English, and how that process of time affects your experience of the novel? Well, I mean, one minute is <laughs> not really a lot of time, but I mean, first of all, probably about the experiences with translators. Uh, I had a lot of positive and a lot of negative experiences, and I understand actually that translator uh, cannot do everything. And uh, especially when I invent new words and the translator thinks it is mis misprint and finds a similar words in the dictionary and puts the right one. And I had uh, quite sad stories uh, like this. Uh, I had one story when actually my publisher took, took my translator to court and then the, because the translator, I, I mentioned already today, uh, the translator changed uh, the order of the chapters and since the novel didn't work with this new order, he filled some kind of joints in between the chapters from himself. And then he refused to restore it. Uh, but uh, my, the most positive case was actually when my uh, Japanese uh, publisher, Shintosha, sent my Japanese translator to Kiev so that I could show her during the week all the corners and streets which are described in the book. But generally, I mean, I, I am very grateful to some translators because the books are published without being edited in Ukraine. And so sometimes from my translators, I find out that there are logical mistakes or there are some other things. And so I go back and I correct <laughs> the original. Brilliant. Um, and you spoke this morning about um, editors encouraging the creation of an international um, version and a national version. Um, and that, that, that sounded really interesting because the thing that strikes me about The Good Angel of Death um, is that it presents a view of Ukraine and the Caspian Sea region which isn't, um, doesn't feel like an international version. It feels like a book that's presented for a national audience um, in the same way that we had the book um, by Ni Aikwai Parks last year called Tale of the Bluebird, which was very much um, written from a Ghanaian perspective um, and didn't kind of over-explain the cultural differences. Um, but ask the reader to kind of walk the streets of an unfamiliar place and see what they find for themselves. It's kind of what I think Maureen was saying this morning about the best part of travelling being 
getting lost and finding what you find. Um, I just wondered whether that had any, um, whether you had deliberately kind of been clear that you didn't want this international version of your books created and whether you did have to fight to create, to keep it feeling very much like a book written for a domestic audience. Well, actually, I didn't have problems with this book because, uh, except for one thing, which is not translatable, because this, uh, The Good Angel of Death, is a bilingual book. So there are characters who speak actually Ukrainian in the Russian edition, so there are two languages used. And there are some actually jokes with the languages because, I mean, in the, uh, the beginning of the post Soviet era, the Ukrainian nationalists in their newspapers used very uh, uh, purposely. Russian words transliterated in Ukrainian and sort of sounded funny. So I did the, the other thing. So I, I transliterated Ukrainian into Russian without trying to make the, the language funny. Yeah, but I mean, of course, this is lost in the translation. But uh, the novel which is to be published in this spring in uh, Switzerland, in Germany, there are small things which are not cultural differences, but mostly historical contexts and some details which need explanation. And 20 years ago, there would be probably a note in the bottom of the page explaining what is this and where is it and something. And now, actually, the publishers are trying to get rid of this tradition. So they, they are asking, actually, to remove the, the bits which are, they think, friend in German, for, foreign for the readers. Yeah, but. Uh, I would say, I mean, like, Death and the Penguin is the uh, same version, international and national. So I think this, the concept of international version is something very new, because, I mean, first time I was directly asked by my publisher to, to be more kind to their uh, suggested changes, because they want to have one international version for all the countries, except the original. There I can keep the control. Brilliant. And um, Evie and Katie, uh, you've had experience and stuff, and have more experience of your books translated into other languages. Um, I wonder if you could speak quickly about what your experiences of that has been, and whether whether you've had any any relationships with the translators. Um, I met my Italian translator who's going to do it, and she said it would be easy to translate because my sentences are short and I don't use big words, which mostly made me worry a bit about my vocabulary. Um, I suppose a kind of related experience is I did the adaptation of the book for the screenplay, um, which was really interesting. It wasn't particularly difficult, but it was interesting kind of simplifying, not simplifying, but kind of reducing the book um, to a script and then handing it over to somebody else who would then think about kind of expanding it again. Um, so yeah, but that's kind of all I've, all I've got in the way. I've only been translated into Dutch and French, and I don't speak either of those languages. So um, I think my, the most experience I've had of, of being involved with the process was translating it into American. Um, <laughs> or, or not letting it being translated into American, so they want to they want to change the word youth to truck, and there was a big confusion about um, the term pot plant, what that meant, um, <laughs> and they were also quite keen for a bit to have a glossary at the back because there are a lot of Australian words like bunyip and I don't know kookaburra, and and that for for America for some reasons it seems like a problem. And it has seemed like, with feedback, it seems like people would have enjoyed a glossary, but really, I think with Google, there's not really an excuse. 
Um, and it's, it's quite interesting um, that gender plays a role in all of your books. I mean, Evie and Katie, you're writing about very masculine characters in very masculine environments. Um, and Andre, um, you're, but although the, the gender isn't a major aspect, um, I think at one point um, Collier references and talks about being um, feeling like a member of the third sex, no longer male or female, but a child in need of both male and female to look after him. Um, I just wondered if you could speak quickly about kind of what um, what role gender has played in your books, um, both as being authors and um, whether your gender adds something or um, determines anything about the books that you write, and also the characters. <laughs> um, when I when I started writing the book, I, I really wasn't. It really wasn't in my head that I was um, doing something unusual by writing as a man. It was just the voice that came out. Um, and I get asked quite a lot, you know, how can you're a woman? How can you possibly get in mind in the mind of a man? Um, which you know, I have a brother and I have a father and I know lots of men and and. I, I come from um, one part of my family, my, my father's side of the family is very, very English and very kind of, um, has grown up with sort of nannies and that sort of thing. And the other part of my family are very, very masculine men in Australia on a farm and they ride tractors in their underwear and no shoes and, and that sort of thing. So I guess it's always been something that's interested me, the kind of, the difference between that, but I, d I don't really... I don't know, I, I don't particularly feel like a, I've written a, a, a masculine book, I just think that's how I write. Maybe I'm just a masculine lady. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we had a lot of discussions in Ukraine and before that in the Soviet Union whether you, this was a post, uh, patriarchal society or matriarchal society. And I made my mind long ago that actually Ukraine, as well as Russia, are matriarchal societies where the men pretending to be in charge. <laughs> and actually, in, in my novel, actually, I use this idea. So all the women are very strong, very masculine, and they are always ready to defend their men, also physically. And my, my, actually, my character is prominently helped and defended by women. <laughs> so otherwise, he wouldn't survive. Um. I think I very consciously decided to write a masculine book. Um, there are no female characters in the, in the book at all. Um, and partially that was because I, I kind of hated when everybody would sort of say you should write what you know, and I thought I'm going to write what I don't know. But of course the big surprise is that not only are there many obviously men in my life, but just because of the books that are available and the books that have been published historically, we're actually incredibly familiar with male voices as readers. Um, so I've read many, many books that have been obviously written, more books written by men than women. Um, so channeling the voice, the internal voice of a man is actually not that difficult. Um, I think it's, for me personally, maybe more difficult to write a strong, interesting, um, fully consistent female character would be more difficult, I think. Interesting. So it's almost like influence um, of a canon of literature that, that's directing you a certain way. Yeah, 
I, I think that's I think that's probably true. It, it was interesting to me to try to write um, male characters in the way that a lot of very canonical male writers have written them, um, and that's not what I'm doing in my next book at all. But I think it was something I wanted to try, not not as an exercise, but to some extent to see if I could do it. Fantastic. At this point, um, I wonder if we could open up questions to the audience, and I can already see a hand going up, which is great because there's always that nervous pause when like, will someone ask a question, won't they? Um, I will just, um, because we don't have a mic, I'll just repeat the questions after they've been asked. This is just a broad question about violence, um, and I tried to Katie, but it seems like it would apply to both of your books in different ways, maybe in a comic kind of violence and, and then historicized violence, but Katie, it seems like to write this book you have to think about violence constantly, daily, and what it is, what it is in literature and what it might be in real life and what it is in the media, so I'm just wondering, did you, what are your thoughts about violence itself? Or do you have any? If that's too hard, what about violence in the book? Yeah, the idea of doing something so sculpted but that has violence as its motor seems really quite interesting. Could everyone hear that question? Um, basically, the question was about violence um, in the book and um, how Katie wrote that. Um, I think the first fight I saw, the reason I was interested in it, was because you have something that's very real taking place. I mean, they're not scripted fights, they're real fights, and people get hurt in them and they're often hospitalized. Um, but it, it's contained in a way. You have, all, you have rules, you have a ring, you have rounds, you have a referee floating around in the middle of the ring. Um, so what interested me about fighting is how you could have that immediate access to this very real violence, but at the same time it was contained. And it was it was a spectacle. It had elements of theater and narrative in it. Um, so that was what drew me to writing about it in the first place. Um, is is how within this incredibly formalized language you could also access something that couldn't fully be contained by it. So that was mostly my interest in that. Uh, well, I'm not really fascinated by violence, but I, I was fascinated by black humor many years ago, and actually. I, most of my books contain a lot of black humor, and some of this humor is quite violent, yeah. But uh, not in this book, and actually there is always some kind of remedy to violence, and there should be. Um, when, I was, um, when I was very young, when I was about 11, my um, Australian cousin handed me this photo album. Um, my uncle had fought in Vietnam. Um, and it was a it was an album of all the people he killed in Vietnam, and at the time I really didn't understand what I was looking at, um, and kind of I guess processed it, and and then learned about the war, and and then learned a lot about um, you know trophy collectors in Vietnam, and I think for me the violence, it was important to find out under what situations those photographs were taken and what the violence meant um, to my uncle, who I loved very much, and to me was a, a kind, soft man um, in the kind of most masculine Australian sense of the word. And, um, and so I think writing this book was really exploring, you know, about is it the violence or is it the person that's the important, is it the, the acts they do or, or the way that they conduct themselves that's the important thing? Um, I'm not saying that I have got any closer to an answer, but yeah. Does anyone have any other questions? Yes? Um, Katie touched upon 
Uh, the question was, um, what are the three authors working on at the moment? Yeah. For everyone. <laughs> well, I'm writing a novel set in a beautiful Western Ukrainian city, Lviv, which has actually five names because it was part of Roman Empire Leopolis, then uh, German Lemberg, Polish Lviv, Ukrainian Lviv uh, now, and before that Russian Vov. And uh, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to experiment all this, and and this time I'm, I'm trying to get influenced by Alfred Hitchcock's films actually. So I'm trying to recreate the atmosphere of his films in this uh, city, and I use a couple of real characters quite well known in the city with their consent as main characters in the novel. Um, I am just hope, I mean I'm meant to get the edits on my second novel into my editor um, at the end of the month. So it's called Gone to the Forest and it's set in a kind of made up composite of multiple colonial countries that um, span, you know, a century or so. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, um, I've just handed in um, a book about a shepherdess, which um, sounds pretty grim, but it's also got sharks in it, so that's you know. um, And I'm also uh, working on a graphic novel with, um, with an illustrator about sharks again. Yes? There's a question for Evie. Was your still small voice coming out of that album that was your uncle's? So the question is, I'm sorry, just to repeat it, it's, was the still small voice of the title coming out of the looking at the album? I think it's, um, I mean, it's a, a mixture of things. I think there is the literal, um, you know, after the fire, as in machine gun fire, and it's really, in a way, yes, it's, it's about the, um, you know, there's all the noise and blood and gore of war, and then there's the real stuff that kind of happens when you get home and it's quiet and you're left with those memories and, and those feelings. Do you have any more questions? Okay, yep. What did, what did your uncle think of the book? So the question is, what did Edie's uncle think of the book? Uncle Tim isn't a big reader, um, and it took him it took him a year and a half to read it. I, the whole time I was sweating, um, but he I talked to him a lot about about his experiences, um, and and I really really worried about the Vietnam scenes because it's not my you know I mean it's very definitely not my war. Um, I wasn't there and I wasn't alive when it was going on, and I was worried about sort of taking the war and making it to use my to using it to make my book serious and um and so I, I worked very hard on those bits um and so it was a real worry but he finally read it about six months ago and was just like eh. so <laughs> 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 that's a, that's about as much as you know as as good as it can get from him <laughs> I've got another question, um, which is slightly self-serving, I'd say. Just um, sort of reading, and for that matter, writing, are often kind of thought of as solitary affairs, 
um, the, the kind of one-to-one -one relationship between um, the reader and the book. Um, but I wondered whether you had any opinions on what um, kind of mass participation program like Summer Reads, um, what the benefits are in terms of for readers and possibly also for writers if you think there are any. Um, I know that might be an impossible question that may, if, if the answer is I don't know, <laughs> I completely understand. I'll start this time because I, mean, I, I do about uh, six, seven months of travel every year in different countries, actually having public events and uh, participating in the festivals and discovering the countries like I discovered recently, Sri Lanka thanks to the golf festival. And uh, I mean, if, if there is an active interaction and there are many questions, of course, I mean, they, they can change your ideas sometimes or they can give you ideas. And uh, uh, especially if you, if, if you give public readings in Germany, you get a lot of very strange questions. And uh, I remember uh, uh, when I was presenting Death and the Penguin, and this is the novel with the, with the depressed penguin with a heart problem. Uh, uh, and um, it's it just the main character lives with him because the main character was dumped by his girlfriend because he's hopeless, jobless, etc. And he found out that the zoo doesn't have money to feed the animals, so the zoo gave small animals away to anybody who could feed them. And he lives with this penguin in a small flat. And several times I was asked by different audiences why I don't describe where the penguin goes to the toilet. <laughs> but uh, I should say that I didn't change anything now in the novel. Uh, and still it is not clear. And I myself don't know. Um. <laughs> I think as a writer, especially at this moment, you're incredibly grateful to know that there are people out there who are, are reading books and um, gathering together in a physical way to talk about them. I think that's really exciting. Um, I, lo I love that idea of the flash mob that you did. I think that's really fun and, and interesting. Um, I don't know if it, I just haven't been writing long enough to know if it's changed my um, my writing, but it's always really nice to kind of see actual people in front of you. Um, I think for me it really helps sort of getting people's questions and feedback because you can, it's, I sort of learn how to talk about the book, which is after writing it in a, you know three and a half years of not really seeing that many people and and thinking about it or trying to think about it um, as this fairly abstract thing, you don't really know how to say you know it's a book about X Y Z and and you need to be able to know what it is to to publicise it and so it, it always really helps like um, like your question about the album is you know I'm already going I can use that <laughs> so it is it, it is really really helpful to get feedback and, and again to know that there are people reading the book and willing to come along to an event like this do we have any other questions from the audience no well I think we're perfectly on time to be finishing um, so in a few minutes, you'll have a chance to um, chat to the authors, get your book signed, and buy some copies provided by the wonderful Book Hive. Um, please do go along and, and get them. Um, I'd like to thank, I'm very obligatory thanks, that are always a pleasure to give, um, because when you're running a program like Summer Reads, there are so many people you want to thank. Um, first of all, the Millennium Library, obviously, and the staff here for making this event happen and for all the work they do across the rest of the three months in making Summer Eats happen. 
um, to the Norfolk Library Service similarly for um, providing the kind of overarching um, organisation to, to, to bring 45 libraries together in one campaign. Um, and most of all to Evie, Andre and Katie for um, their opinions, their readings and their, their wonderful thoughts. I, I, want, I hope you can give them a big round of applause now, please.